Hello, and welcome to this remote sermon podcast. When libraries first closed during the pandemic, we resorted to buying books, and I wish I could say that this increased our collection of the classics, but instead we now own a lot more books from popular modern fantasy series. To try to encourage our kids to read some older books, I checked out Ursula K. Le Guin's A Wizard of Earthsea. It tells the story of a boy named Ged who learns magic and goes on a mission to find and destroy an evil shadow. His journey soon takes him over the open seas where the shadow has fled, but he becomes shipwrecked. Gathering what bits of wood are left of his boat, he uses magic to bind them together and set sail again. However, as he goes along this time, he has to be mindful of tending to his boat, regularly renewing the spells that are holding the bits of wood together, lest they scatter and go drifting off on the waves. We take care of many things in our lives. For some of us, schooling or working from home this past year has meant more cooking, cleaning, or parenting than usual. We take care of our bodies, our work, our pets, our yards, our families. But there's one thing that's most important for us to take care of. If we don't pay attention to it, we would be like Ged, forgetting about his boat, finding the pieces of our lives unraveling. We would end up unmoored and drifting. Have you ever felt like that? Unmoored and uncentered? Unable to see your true mission in the midst of all the things going on in life? Tossed up and down by whatever wave of circumstance comes your way? That happens when we don't take care of the one thing most essential to who we are, our soul. We've been in the book of Deuteronomy for the last few weeks. Deuteronomy is a sermon, a series of three sermons, actually. It's been called the first sermon series in history. Moses is preaching to the Israelites, who have left Egypt, wandered through the wilderness, and are now assembled at the plains of Moab, on the cusp of the promised land. They're in a time of transition, just like we are. They're facing a future they both anticipate and perhaps fear, just like we may be. And during this pivotal time, Moses draws their attention to what it is they should most take care of in their lives. Let's pick up where David left off last week by looking at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9. As we study it, let's look at what we should keep, why we should keep it, and how we should keep it. What, why, and how. Deuteronomy 4, 9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. First, what should we keep? Moses begins, only take care and keep. In the original language of Hebrew, there's only one word there for that phrase, one word that's repeated twice for emphasis, the word samar, meaning to keep. In the Bible, this word is used of the way shepherds keep their sheep, or a watchman on the walls keeps the city, or a gardener keeps his garden. In English, we have innkeepers, zookeepers, beekeepers, bookkeepers, groundskeepers, peacekeepers. A keeper is someone who is in charge of caring for something in a comprehensive way. A keeper watches, protects, attends to, and fosters the growth of whatever is in his or her care. Not only does Moses repeat this word for emphasis, he tacks on the adverb diligently. It's the same word he uses later on in Deuteronomy 6.5 when he says, Love the Lord your God with all your strength. That word for strength is translated 
diligently here. It means utterly, exceedingly, with all the force you can muster. The root of the word means a firebrand, a wooden poker, a stick you use to stir up a fire. There's a connotation of both fervor and attention. Moses is saying the one thing you must keep with all of your fervor and attention is your soul. Now, what do we mean by soul? A soul is a surprisingly hard thing to define. The Bible itself doesn't provide an exact definition. You might wonder if it's the same thing as spirit. Sometimes the Bible distinguishes soul and spirit as two different things, in which case soul usually refers to the whole being, whereas spirit can refer to the non-physical part of one's being. But often the words for soul and spirit are used synonymously. We can conclude that while this meaning of spirit can vary, it's safe to say that soul always refers to our whole being. Our soul integrates our whole person, mind, will, and body into an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny. Our soul is the ultimate reality of who we are, our eternal self. It is what animates our bodies, what continues to exist when our bodies die, and it's what will animate our resurrection body one day. And the interesting thing is that even though our souls are so essential to who we are, we're often not consciously aware of them. We're not terribly concerned about them. We tend to focus more on what we do or how we do it than on who we are, who we are in our thoughts, feelings, choices, who we are in our inner life. But it's that inner life that counts. The soul is what counts. Dallas Willard writes, the most important thing in your life is not what you do, it's who you become. That's what you will take into eternity. So the thing we must keep most diligently in our lives is our soul. Secondly, why? Why should we do this? Moses gives us two reasons. The first reason is that our souls are constantly being formed. Moses goes on to say, Lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart. Why is he so worried about them forgetting God? Well, he spends the rest of the chapter talking about idolatry. And you have to realize back then, everyone represented their gods in physical form. It was just what was done. What was radically countercultural about the Israelite God was that he had no form. That's why Moses keeps repeating that. In verse 12, you heard the sound of words, but saw no form. In verse 15, you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you. The Israelites had lived in Egypt for 400 years. They had been inculcated for generations in an idolatrous culture. And while they had gotten a break from that in the wilderness, they were now headed back to it in the land they would enter. And Moses is acutely aware of that, of how easy it will be for them to forget an invisible God when everyone around them can see and touch their gods. Our souls are never stagnant. They are constantly being shaped. And if we're not conscious of forming them, they'll be formed by the things around us. They'll take on the character of whatever cultures we're living in or choices we're making. I heard someone say once, when we're young, we look like our parents. When we're old, we look like our decisions. And we know this, right? We know that what we come to desire is affected by what we look at. 
What we come to believe is affected by what we read or watch. What we come to define as success is affected by what others around us are living for. How is our culture affecting who you are becoming? What cultural norms may be pulling you away from spiritual reality? We took a road trip during the pandemic, during which we played the soundtrack for Frozen 2 nonstop the entire time in the car. Now, I like the Frozen movies, don't get me wrong, but there's this one line in the song, Show Yourself, that sends chills down my spine. Warning, this may be a spoiler alert. It's the line, you are the one you've been waiting for all of my life, all of your life. It's a breathtaking musical climax, but it's also an eerily succinct summary of one of the cultural idols of our time, the self. You are the answer you've been searching for. The ultimate authority is found within. You define truth. True freedom is the freedom to be whoever you want to be. The goal of life is to achieve self-actualization. Promoting the self is the prime mission. This sort of moral ecology of the divine self is everywhere. It's the underlying belief behind many popular speakers and authors. It's in our postmodern emphasis of self-determined narrative as ultimate truth. And it seeps into our faith. We may attend church on Sundays, but live how we want the rest of the week. We may have primarily consumeristic approaches to church, shopping for whatever meets our tastes. We read the Bible to get what we want out of it. We become easily frustrated if God doesn't answer our prayers on our timetable. Eugene Peterson writes, The great weakness of North American spirituality is that it is all about us. Fulfilling our potential, getting in on the blessings of God, expanding our influence, finding our gifts, getting a handle on principles by which we can get an edge over the competition. And the more there is of us, the less there is of God. The Bible embraces the finding of happiness, the discovery of self, the joy of freedom, but it does so through an entirely different paradigm. The Bible says that what we need is revelation, meaning that is not found from within but received from without. We need intervention because we can never solve the problems in ourselves by looking to nothing but ourselves. Freedom is to discover the guidelines we were made to live by. The divine self is one example of a cultural idol. What others do you see at work around you? Has the past year revealed any of them in new or deeper ways? Idolatry is forgetting God, because if we don't keep our souls for God, something else will always come in to take God's place. Moses gives us a second reason why it's important to keep our souls. How we keep our souls is going to affect how we keep everything else in our lives. He goes on to say, Make them, your experiences of God, known to your children and your children's children. Now, first of all, this is a bit of a surprise, I think. You'd expect Moses to say, take care of your soul so you can govern well or be great warriors or establish the tabernacle. Any of those things would have been more urgent and obvious. But Moses, this legendary male leader, says, you know what's important? 
You know why you do all that? So you can teach your children and grandchildren. If nothing else, this is great encouragement and affirmation for mothers and fathers and grandparents and caregivers and teachers and mentors that the work we do in teaching children is one of the most important things we can do. Moses isn't just talking about teaching in the sense of transferring information. The word known here signifies a deep, intimate kind of knowledge. To make God known in a way that goes beyond facts to become operative knowledge, you have to know God yourself at a soul level. You can read books and acquire techniques about parenting, but in the end, what your children learn from you comes from your soul, comes from what they truly see about what you desire, what you value, how you define meaning, how you see the world. The prerequisite to being a good parent is to keep your soul with all diligence. And this applies to all areas of our lives. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Our soul is like that stream of water, which gives both nourishment and direction to every area of our lives. It's not just another entry on the list of things we take care of. It's the center and source of it all. If our soul is not as it should be, it will affect every area of our lives. When Dave and I got married, we listened through Tim Keller's nine sermon series on marriage. I'm sure there was a lot of good stuff in there, but one of the few things I remember is that he said, if your marriage is strong, you step out into the world in strength. If your marriage is weak, you step out into the world in weakness. We found that to be true, and I think it's true of our souls as well. It doesn't matter what kind of trouble our circumstances hold. If our souls are strong, if we have cared for them well, then we will step out into the world in strength. And the reverse is true as well. How we keep our souls affects how we keep everything else in our lives. We come now to the third and last point. How do we do it? How do we keep our souls? As we think about this, I want to go back to the first time this word keep occurs in the Bible. It's in Genesis 2.15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Think about what it means to keep a garden. You begin with a vision of what you have in mind, the harvest, bud, or fruit. But then you live it out by attending to it on a granular and daily level, watering, fertilizing, pruning, weeding. Yet despite all the work, you are not the creator of life within it. You are not the controller of the growth. You are the keeper. And it's like this with keeping our souls. It begins with having a vision of what our souls are and what they are for. If our souls are our essential being, the integration and the source of all of who we are, then our souls are our life. And the Bible says that life comes from God. The word for soul is nefesh, breath, life breathed into us by God. The flourishing of our souls happens when we find our lives in and with God, and as we form our souls more and more into Christlikeness. How do we keep our souls to that vision? Well, like a garden, it takes a combination of practices and of grace. First, it takes practice. You know, 
I'd like to be able to sit down and play a Chopin ballade, but it would be ridiculous to think I could do it without months of practice. Our kids would love to beat their times at their next swim meet, but that would be unrealistic if they hadn't been practicing in the pool. It would be just as far-fetched for us to think that we can act like Christ in a moment of need without having any practice or exercise in godly living, yet that's what many of us unconsciously assume we can do. It's not enough just to want to act like Christ. We have to commit to the kind of life practices that help produce the character change which leads to that. Otherwise, our effort in the moment will likely not be enough. Just like we would water or weed a garden to help it grow, there are practices that foster the growth of Christlikeness in our lives that, like a trellis, provides the structural guidance and space our souls need to grow best. Examples might include prayer, Bible reading, study, or memorization, solitude, silence, fasting, meditation, worship, service, fellowship, celebration, or Sabbath. These may occur in different combinations or ways depending on the seasons and needs of our spiritual life, but it is hard to grow if they are mostly absent. What kind of regular spiritual practices do you have in your life? What kind of spiritual season are you in and how might that change your need for or experience of any of these practices? One practical tool that's helped me with this is coming up with a rule of life. This term, first coined by St. Benedict, refers simply to a structure of regular practices which gently guides us towards spiritual transformation. We ask ourselves, how do I want to live so that I can take care of my soul well during the season of life? And we come up with an intentional pattern of practices, a rhythm of life that helps us do that. A rule of life is very personal. It can look quite different from person to person or from season to season. It may be tailored to your personality, your strengths, or areas of sin or hurt you sense God is turning you towards. Sometimes it involves focusing on a new practice you want to try out for a few months. Generally, it's good to have a balance between those spiritual disciplines that come easier to you and those that stretch you more. It's always good to stay flexible to reassess your rule of life every few months or so. It may be one of the most important things is to be realistic. It's tempting to believe that we could be more spiritual if we were in a different season of life, but the truth is that spiritual transformation happens right where we are. There is work God wants to do in our souls exactly where we are right now that in fact cannot be practiced at any other time of our lives in quite the same way. We may have to be realistic, creative, or flexible about how we adapt practices. We may have to remind ourselves to persevere, that the point is not perfection but faithfulness. But the work of becoming always happens right where we are. What regular practices do you have for keeping your soul? Secondly, keeping our souls involves the regular experience of grace. 
So far, we've only taken a look at verse 9, but in the Hebrew, verse 9 is the beginning of one long continuous sentence that goes until the end of verse 14. What Moses does after verse 9 is go on to tell a story about the Israelites' encounter with God at Mount Sinai. It's a story that engages the imagination and stirs the senses. Listen to this part from verse 11. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. That could be a line straight out of Lord of the Rings. The story that Moses tells is actually the story of our souls. It begins with God saying in verse 10, gather the people to me. Our souls are created to be in relationship with God. We are to keep our souls in and for God. But the story has a problem. We can only come near the foot of the mountain. Moses says in verse 11, we cannot go up. All the practices in the world do not help. But then, at the climax of the story in verse 13, Moses says that a voice comes out of the fire. God's voice does two things. It speaks the Ten Commandments, which in the Hebrew is simply the Ten Words, and it declares to his people his covenant. Amazingly, this is the first place in the Bible this word covenant appears. It becomes a theme for the entire book of Deuteronomy, which scholars have noted contains all the elements of an ancient Near East treaty. God makes a covenant, a treaty with his people, which they end up violating again and again. But one day, God sends another word and another covenant. John says Jesus was the word became flesh. His blood was the new covenant poured out for us. What's new about the new covenant is not that there are no commandments at all, but that in Jesus we have been given both forgiveness of sins and the power for continual transformation through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. This is grace. This is a gift. It's nothing that we earn. There is still practice. There is still effort, but external obedience can never be the main point. It must always arise out of an inner transformation that is only accomplished by God through his grace. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. There has to be watering and planting, but in the end, it's only God who makes things grow. Someone once said, The gospel of grace is not just a diving board, but a swimming pool. Grace is not just the way we begin in Christ, it's the way we continue to grow in Christ. You know, the tendency to think that we achieve growth on our own is so strong that we have to purposefully interact with grace every day. Maybe this means preaching grace to yourself, hearing it from a friend or in the words of a song, receiving it during quiet times in God's presence. Maybe it means awakening to the graces in your day, the beauty, the kindness, the provision that are all God's gifts to you and expressions of his own being and nature. How do you preach the gospel of grace to yourself every day? Keeping our souls involves both practice and grace.
The problem is we often are low on both. We're in this middle ground where we feel bad. We're not experiencing the fullness of God. We struggle with being gracious to ourselves about it, but we don't actually do it. We don't actually do the spiritual practices and we don't give ourselves grace about it either. It's easy to get stuck in that middle place because none of it seems urgent. Our souls don't demand our daily attention the way many other things in our lives do. But remember, these are Moses' last words. After he finishes, he will leave his pulpit on the plains, climb a mountain, and die. He's had 40 years to think about what he wants to say in this moment, his last moment before he leaves his people. And what he leaves us with is this. Keep your souls diligently. Don't forget God. Know him so you can make him known to those around you. There's nothing more urgent or important than that. As Eugene Peterson writes of the spiritual life, this is slow work and cannot be hurried. It is also urgent work and can't be procrastinated. Ged does finally meet the shadow he seeks out on the open ocean. In fact, he battles with the shadow right there in his little spell-patched boat, and the boat holds together. That's my prayer for all of us, that whatever we may face in this next phase of the future, we will find ourselves, both as individuals and as a community, with our souls well-kept and our lives well-centered in Jesus. Amen. Amen.